4. By the time Marvin gets to bombs bursting in air, you can see his hands finally stop shaking. A rhythmic clap begins to grow from the audience. I watch fireworks in July 2013. Two weeks later, George Zimmerman walks free, and Trayvon Martin is still dead. Marvin Gaye sings If You Wanna Love, You Got To Save The Babies, and a black mother pulls her son close. I watch fireworks in July 2014. Later that month, the world turns to the internet and sees Eric Garner choked to death by police officer Daniel Pontalio. Marvin Gaye sings Trigger Happy Policing, Panic Is Spreading, God Knows Where We're Heading, and thousands of people march from New York to Washington. I will watch the fireworks in 2015 and black churches are burning in the South. I will watch the fireworks in 2015 and no one marched for Renisha McBride. I will watch the fireworks in 2015 and people I love can be legally married on Saturday, and then legally fired from their jobs on Monday. Marvin Gaye sings in the morning, I'll be alright, my friend, and a group of black children watch the sky light up, seeing darkness turned inside out for the first time. Ric Flair, Best Rapper Alive Once you realize that it's all performance, the medicine goes down easier. The boy on the playground who doesn't really want to fight dances around and talks his shit at a volume that shakes the birds from the trees. There was a point where most feared rappers are the ones who could best convince you that they have killed someone before, even if they hadn't. Perhaps if they had only held a gun and dreamed of the history it could unwrite. Before the internet, it was even more possible to believe in anything a performer presented. It took more work to track their histories, their more unprepared moments. I feared NWA most when they wore all black and looked like they might not run from any manner of violence that arrived at their doorsteps. Look, all I know is that Ali started this shit, bouncing around his opponents and daring them to lay some small violence on him. What a gift, to be both invisible and as bright as the sun itself. All I'm saying is that no one knows where Richard Morgan Fleer came from and that ain't even his birth name but no one knows that either, not even him. The Tennessee Children's Home Society spent the 40s and 50s illegally removing children from their birth mothers and stripped them of their histories before putting them up for questionable adoptions with desperate parents, and that's how Richard Fleer ended up in the world, so it's hard to trace exactly when and how the fire started. But it did start in Memphis, where three Six Mafia once played at a nightclub on Lt. George W. Lee Avenue after they won an Academy Award for a song about the difficulties associated with being a pimp, and Juicy J had the Academy Award on stage and the light hit it just right and reflected back into the crowd and Juicy J said, this right here is for Memphis, Tennessee, and everyone was blinded by its immense presence. And then he threw a handful of dollar bills in the crowd that arched and then collapsed in the middle of the club floor and this was in 2006 in the South when everyone was just trying to survive and so a fight broke out right there in the middle of the club while 3-6 Mafia played their song Stay Fly which samples the Willie Hutch song Tell Me Why Has Our Love Turned Cold which is one of those samples that you can't unravel from your memory once you hear it nested deep in the song and so while watching a man straddling another man on the ground preparing to throw a punch, all I could hear was Willie Hutch singing Tell Me tell me, tell me so what I'm mostly saying is that Memphis is a wild place to fight your way into and then fight your way out of. And speaking of staying fly, Richard Morgan Fleer was going by Ric Flair in 1975, when the twin-engine Cessna 310 he was in ran out of gas in North Carolina and fell from the sky, hitting the ground at 100 miles per hour. In the picture of the plane after the crash, the entire front window is gone, the plane's front smashed. The pilot, Joseph Farkas, 
eventually died from the crash. The crash also paralyzed wrestler Johnny Valentine, one of the biggest wrestlers of the era. When the plane went down all of the seats were jarred loose, pushing the weight of all the wrestlers onto Valentine at impact. Before the flight began, Ric Flair switched seats with Valentine, after being nervous about sitting up front near the pilot. Ric Flair walked away from the flight with a broken back, and returned to the ring in six months. Doctors told him that his bones were healed but there was no telling how they'd hold up under the stress of the ring. Valentine never walked again. Ric Flair never talks about this. But he sure could talk, sometimes about flying, sometimes in jets while wearing $8,000 sequined robes in the 1980s. There is almost dying and then there is truly almost dying. The thing about that is you get a grasp of all that which you cannot take with you and then you sometimes wear it on your body at all times. Ali had the mouth, but was always too humble for the gold. Ric Flair walked from the wreckage and became the nature boy. All of the best showmen hid behind their names and their gold. The people didn't scream for Antonio Hardy like they did for Big Daddy Kane. The women weren't always running for James Todd Smith, but for LL Cool J, sure. It is more than just the name. At the start of rap, it was about stepping into a phone booth and coming out as something greater than you were. It was easier to sell a personality than it is now, with every nuance of a person's life splayed in front of us. Rappers can go by their real names now, with no persona attached, and still be legends. Ric Flair, already an invention, walked from a plane crash reinvented. I imagine the rivalry between Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes was only a little bit about wrestling and a lot about the fantasy of hard work seeing a triumph over Flash. Dusty Rhodes wasn't built like a bodybuilder. He was built like a man who you might live next to, and see mowing the lawn on a Sunday morning. He sold himself as a plumber's son, a part of the working-class America who kept his adornments modest by comparison to his peers. Dusty Rhodes was more of an idea than a wrestler. The American dream that could still be touched by anyone who just worked hard enough. Nestled up next to Flair, sold as the golden boy, born with a silver spoon and reaping the benefits of a hardened, steroid-enhanced body, the battles became that of someone fighting for the people against someone fighting for his own, gold-drenched legacy. In promos, Dusty Rhodes would scream at Flair about how he was going to defeat him in the name of blue-collar Americans everywhere, and Flair, on a split screen, would laugh, flip his blonde hair, and let it fall perfectly back into place. The fundamental difference between Rhodes and Flair that sat in the middle of their feud is a difference that also sat between LL Cool J and Cool Mo D during their near-decade battle with each other, a different understanding of what the people need. Mo D, like Rhodes, was interested in selling the people a living dream, while Flair and LL were more interested in selling the possibility of dreaming larger. The idea of making yourself anything, as large as you want to be, so that someone might think twice before coming for you. Modi thought that he could pick LL apart by mocking his muscles, his appearance, the consistent licking of his lips. This scored some direct hits, sure. But LL just covered his chest in bigger chains, came back with bigger muscles, became loved by more of the masses. This idea was simple, there is no victory like fame. Popularity so heavy that no one can take it from you, even if they tried. It didn't matter if Ric Flair lost to Dusty Rhodes in the ring if he made people believe that he would never lose to him in life. I grew up too poor to admire the fantasy of the slow rise of the working class. I admire the things I could see when I closed my eyes, always a bit out of reach.
when I started making my own money, I bought all of the sneakers I saw rappers wearing in their videos because it seemed like a way to separate myself from the times I opened an empty refrigerator. Ric Flair wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but none of the best MCs were. The only way to build yourself into something unstoppable is to become intimate with all of that which would otherwise attempt to stop you where you stand. Hunger is not glamorous, but under the bright lights, far removed from its grasp, it is a currency. A thing you know well enough to not desire a return to. The greatest Ric Flair promo is called His Kingdom. In it, he directly addresses Lex Luger, who was challenging him for his heavyweight title. The promo is vintage Flair, starting out tense, but calm, and then slowly losing his cool as the promo goes on, eventually stripping out of his expensive jacket, loosening his expensive tie, and tearing off his expensive sunglasses. The promo hits a climax with about one minute left, when Flair decides to rip off a bandage that was covering a wound on his head. As his eyes bulge and the veins pop out of his forehead, blood lightly begins to descend from the wound, making a slow journey down the front of his face. It was the height of his performance as Ric Flair, who walked away from a plane crash and ran into the ring still broken. Who never talks about facing death, who maybe before would be ashamed to show his own blood, who maybe would be ashamed to show the damage done to his stunning and flawless image. And as he hit fever pitch, his eyebrows raised and holding back the small river of blood from falling into his eye, he yells, staring into the camera, no one is going to determine my destiny in this sport but me. So, pal, either bury me, or do nothing at all. And he spun and walked away, carried through a crowd once again, on the back of the realest shit he ever wrote. It rained in Ohio on the night Allen Iverson hit Michael Jordan with a crossover. At least this is how I remember it and so, then, this is what I need you to believe with me. Memory is a funny thing, though. Memory is a funny thing. Here is one way that memory is funny, though you may not laugh, I don't remember Michael Jordan inspiring any of the kids on my block to be a basketball player. Some of this was surely age, many of us getting to experience him most clearly after he returned from his first retirement, where he was still spectacular but existed in a different way than he did before. His swagger was much more cerebral, as opposed to the explicit gold chain, dunk from the free-throw line brand. Upon his first return, from the mid-90s until the late 90s, it could be argued that he was at his best. Deadly from mid-range, and with an improved feel for the game, he was both unstoppable and fiercely clutch, playing with a chip on his shoulder larger than the one he had when he left. This was, perhaps, the most fascinating part. He had already won the championships that eluded him. He had already had a two-act career that, for most, would have been good enough. But in his third act, he was most ferocious. Seemingly most dedicated to staring down the clock and pushing back against age. This is how we found Michael Jordan at the top of the key in 1996, guarding Allen Iverson, then a rookie from Georgetown University. Iverson hadn't yet grown out his soon-to-be signature cornrows, and was several tattoos short of where he would end his career. He hadn't yet harnessed all of his abilities yet, but throughout his rookie season, he showed the exciting, franchise-saving ability that made him a number one overall pick the previous summer in an overwhelmingly stacked NBA draft, one of the best of the modern era. And at the top of the key, on what I remember to be a rainy night in Columbus, he faced his idol who he stood next to on the court before tip-off that night and stared at, like he was watching the sun from a closer distance than anyone had ever seen it before. 
The thing about a crossover is that, perhaps more than any other signature dribble move, it relies on trust, a defender willing to trust you, and what they understand about you, and your willingness to deceive them. It is a basic dribble move, one that existed in several forms before Allen Iverson entered the national conversation. Dwayne Washington, while playing at Syracuse in the 1980s, perfected the original crossover, a small switching of direction, the body moving with the ball, just long enough to send a defender briefly off balance. In the 90s, Tim Hardaway introduced the killer crossover, a more exaggerated version of the original, relying on a wide step in the opposite direction and a head fake, before jerking back in the direction away from the defender. Allen Iverson was the master of the final iteration of the move, the one that is most well-known now, the double crossover. The double crossover is the final act. A culmination of the crossover's lineage, at least for now. It is the move, in all of its iterations, sped up and performed almost with a violence. It is exactly what it sounds like, the player performs a killer crossover to throw the defender off balance, and then quickly drags the ball back in the other direction. What made Allen Iverson so efficient and unstoppable in his early career was this move. Defenders, used to only having to shift direction a single time, were thrown off by the small, added movement. It seems like nothing, really. But, depending on pace, the things that can throw us off balance are often the small things. The main strength of a crossover is that it works best when you are being closely guarded. When someone is hovering over you, the crossover allows for a shuffling of feet, a quick backtrack. This is why defenders who are on the business end of a mean crossover sometimes fall to the ground, the quick lateral shuffling of feet when trying to close space means that their legs sometimes get tangled. It creates a thrilling scene. When I was in high school in 2001, a few years after Iverson's most iconic moment, but still firmly in the middle of his career, our basketball team starting point guard hit a teacher with a crossover during a lunch game, and the teacher fell, sliding across the gym floor in his tan pants and sweat-soaked shirt. The gym erupted with students screaming and running in all directions. The teacher, for the remainder of the day, had to walk around with a dark streak on his light pants, like a scar, showing the results of his humiliation. That, too, is part of the ritual, a crossover, more than about getting space, is about who can be briefly humiliated inside of the space you make. The thing about Allen Iverson is that it felt like he should have never made it because in 1993, it was said that he threw a chair during a fight in a bowling alley, which broke out because him and his boys were too loud and it was a big brawl in Hampton, Virginia, and when the police came, only the black people were arrested and so maybe it wasn't just that him and his boys were too loud. Allen, then a high school senior, bound for sports glory, said, what kind of man would I be to hit a woman in the head with a damn chair? But a judge still gave him 15 years with 10 suspended, and so Allen went off to the Newport News Correctional Farm for four months until the Virginia Court of Appeals overturned the conviction due to a lack of evidence. During those four months, Iverson had to finish his high school career at Richard Milburn High School, a school for at-risk students, instead of Bethel High, where he was an all-state football and basketball player. Because of this, his scholarship offers dried up, despite his overwhelming talent in both sports. Only one coach, Georgetown's John Thompson, came to visit him. And this is how Allen Iverson began to make it, despite. The narrative about Allen Iverson is that he's difficult. Difficult to coach, difficult with the media, difficult to the people he loves most. 
He often clashed with authority figures even if he loved them. Hugging John Thompson one minute, and storming away from him the next. The logic, at least as it always appeared to someone watching from afar, was that Alan Iverson loved the game, loved his people, in a way that couldn't be understood, even by those people he loved so much. It is the kind of love that would, perhaps, force a high school sports star to put his career on the line if his boys were in danger. During Allen Iverson's now infamous practice rant, which came after his 76ers were eliminated in the first round of the 2002 playoffs, after making the finals the year before, everyone always hones in on the fireworks, Iverson, repeatedly, bemoaning the fact that he is in a press conference talking about practice. He was worn down, and it showed. The season had weighed on him, littered with reports of him taking plays off and missing mandatory practices leading the rumors of him being traded away from his beloved Philadelphia in the off-season. And it is entertaining, if nothing else. Iverson, fed up, had gotten one too many questions about his practice habits. It is humorous to watch him, in full demonstrative fashion, yelling, practice? Practice? We're talking about practice? Not a game. Not a game but practice? Repeatedly, but there's a reality to it, he simply can't fathom why anything but the game is important. Basketball is a game that literally saved his life, and so it seemed, to him, like being asked to give his all to it in a game was the ultimate sacrifice. Practice was extra, something that didn't move him. And he did give his all, for years, throwing his body all over the place for the city of Philadelphia, and dragging lackluster teams to the playoffs, and then to the finals. He was a six-foot wrecking ball, who wouldn't practice hurt, but who would play hurt for what felt like half of the season. The era of witnessing Allen Iverson was the era of learning a language for your limits and how to push beyond them. But the true work of the press conference lies outside of that brief section. It is a man, at the end of his rope, trying to convince a room that he loves the city he plays for, that he's hurt and afraid, that he is concerned about his family and the game he loves that he thinks his body may be starting to betray him, and he still wants to give the game all he has. Toward the end of the rant, an exhausted Iverson leaned forward on the table to share the most jarring and human moment of the afternoon, which also gets lost. During the season, Iverson's best friend Rasan Langford was murdered. He hadn't been very open about the loss until this moment, dropped into a hostile press conference about a game he loved, but was uncertain about his future in. I'm upset because of one reason. We are in here. I lost my best friend, I lost this year, in the playoffs, I feel that everything is going downhill for me as far as my life. I don't want to deal with this man, I don't want to go through this shit man. At the top of the key in 1996, Michael Jordan is stretched out in his typical defensive stance. He was, by this point, one of the NBA's elite defenders, a skill he entered the league with but perfected in the early 90s, while trying to get past the Detroit Pistons during his first title run. His defensive stance on the night is perfect, arms stretched wide like the wings of a hunting bird, knees bent, and leaning forward on the tops of his feet. There are no statues of him in this stance, though there should be. It is the part of his game that most looked like he had to work at it. By this point in Jordan's career, he could make everything on the offensive end look easy. His knowledge of the game, and the way he'd shifted his style of play to preserve his body, led to an understanding of offensive movements that seemed to make the game slow down for him. But on the defensive end, he was still tenacious, 
like he was fighting to earn his way off of the bench. Michael Jordan never threw a chair during a brawl, as far as we know. He had his share of indecencies, many of them rooted in gambling and infidelity, things that came fully to light after he was out of the game for good. But Jordan, in some ways, was the anti-Iverson. No one would ever call Michael Jordan a thug, a label Iverson was saddled with from the first stages of his career, and probably for much of his life before he entered the NBA. Michael Jordan spoke clearly to reporters and flashed a wide smile with perfect teeth. Michael Jordan endorsed good things like healthy cereal and sports drinks. People died over Michael Jordan's shoes, but let's not talk about that part. Michael Jordan was the kind of black person people wouldn't mind living next to. Michael Jordan was just as competitive as Allen Iverson but he wore it better. Michael Jordan probably didn't love his teammates as much though. Punched one of them in the face during a practice. But at least he showed up to practice. You can't terrorize your teammates at practice if you don't show up. There were two NBAs, it seemed. The one of black players who fit into the Jordan personality archetype. And, by the time Allen Iverson came along, black players who decidedly did not. My parents were from New York and so they loved the Knicks and so I kind of loved the Knicks and my brother loved John Starks and my mother thought Charles Smith seemed like a nice guy and Michael Jordan maybe could have gone easier on the Knicks in the early 90s is all I'm saying really I'm saying I grew up in a home of people who maybe believed Michael Jordan had a bad thing coming. If you listen closely, especially in replays, you can hear Bulls coach Phil Jackson yelling for Michael Jordan to approach Iverson at the top of the key once Iverson gets the ball. Get up on him, he yells out. The double crossover, when sped up, doesn't seem like much. But Iverson is a technician. First, he gave Jordan a small cross, just to see if he'd bite on it. Jordan did, lightly, shifting his body to his right, and giving a slight reach for the ball. This is the moment where, looking back, you know Michael Jordan is done for. It isn't the second crossover, the one that actually finishes him. It's when he bites on the first, smaller one. When he admits a willingness to be fooled. It's all a negotiation of what someone will open up their body to. A negotiation of disbelief, really, what can be sold and who is willing to buy it. By the time Jordan resets his feet, Iverson goes in for the larger cross, the one that sends Jordan back to his right, this time more aggressively, opening up the left side of his body for Iverson to slide past. Had Iverson not made the jump shot after the move, the archival of the moment would not exist. Or if it did, it would be an afterthought, something briefly brilliant, but unfinished. People pull off grand moves every day before missing a shot, or throwing a pass out of bounds, or dribbling the ball off of an opponent's foot. Allen Iverson, with Jordan lunging to get a hand in his face, made a shot from the free throw line before falling, and jogging to get back down the court, staring briefly at Jordan, not entirely with arrogance, but with disbelief. If a guard did change in this moment, it was within the way the game was played, and who it was played facing. The streetballers, those who valued style over substance, the short people who couldn't dunk but could definitely dribble, now had a lighthouse. Eventually, in 2005, when Allen Iverson grew out cornrows and wore tall and baggy shirts, flat-brimmed hats, and covered himself in gold chains at press conferences, David Stern's NBA instituted a dress code. Michael Jordan always dressed well, after all. Players were to wear suits now, to look presentable in front of the media. It was the Iverson rule.
something to stifle what some were calling hip-hop fashion before it bled into the NBA's locker rooms. Allen Iverson pushed back against the code, racking up fines so that he could still wear his jewels, his baggy clothes. So he could never let anyone forget where he was from. So that he could never let anyone forget what he gave up to get here. So that he would always remember that he was different from what the past was, that he blew through it one night in 1997 and never looked back. If you believe that it rained in Ohio on the night Allen Iverson hit Michael Jordan with a mean crossover, you will also believe that I know this by the sound that lingered in the air after my small cheering, the way rain can sometimes sound like an echo of applause if it hits a roof hard enough. You will also believe that I know this by the way an unexpected puddle can slow down a basketball's dribble on blacktop, especially if the basketball is losing some of its traction, some of the grip that it had in its younger days. You will also believe that in my neighborhood, even in basketball's golden days, none of the players would take to the courts on the day after rain, because it was too risky, the court at Scottwood Elementary, known for legendary full-court games filled with Eastside Columbus basketball royalty, was already uneven, and the slickness of even a little rain made the court treacherous, something that many players, also stars for their high school teams, couldn't risk. You will believe that I once wore baggy jeans that dragged the ground until the bottoms of them split into small white flags of surrender and you will also believe that I dreamed of having enough money to buy my way into the kind of infamy that came with surviving any kind of proximity to poverty. You will believe, then, that I remember all of this by the way the ball felt in my hands as I stood on the court alone the next day, pulling the wet ball from one hand to the next and feeling the water spin off of it. You will believe that I only imagined the defender I was breezing past and pushing my way to the foul line. And even as I missed shot after shot after shot, I still cheered. Alone in the wet aftermath of a night where I first saw the player I imagined myself becoming. A shot, finally finding the bottom of the net, and my hand, still extended, to an audience of no one. There is the picture of Michael Jackson kissing Whitney Houston on the cheek. And in the picture Whitney is all teeth the way she was at the end of the 80s the way she was in a white dress as wide as heaven's door at the Grammys where she couldn't dance in those heels but still sang a song about dancing and in the picture Michael is about six years removed from having his daddy's nose and what better way to sever ourselves from the sins of the father than to rebuild the temple and the kiss in the picture is gentle the way it might be for an old friend or a lover or two kin leaning for a moment out of the damned American engine of pop music again at their backs and howling for them to shake their skin to the ground and sing the hits. And in the picture Whitney and Michael are under a tree and on a bridge somewhere south and it is easy to imagine a song in the leaves and it is easy to imagine a song in the water beneath them which once perhaps ran through a preacher's hands or over a baby's head and history repeating itself wouldn't be so bad if not for the chorus of violences accumulating along the landscapes where small miracles sometimes took place and in the picture both of their eyes are closed and I wish for a home in that darkness a small and black eternity. It is likely true that we only get one livable youth and I wasted mine thinking myself beautiful and throwing rent money into jukes and scrawling my phone number on skin in summer and watching it sweat off outside at Goodale Park where we just had to dance to the song we all knew and performing self-worship as a survival and giving myself, unkillable, over to a parade of death instruments and racking up just enough sins to make praying worth the time and leaving socks tangled in bed sheets and sneaking out of a room before sunlight ruptured its silence and locking arms with a motley crew of hooligans in the drunken hours and shoving five bodies into the back seats of cabs and opening the doors and sprinting down Livingston when it came time to pay the driver while he cursed the names of our families a small penance for keeping the cash we'd spend on the pills that we'd never be bold enough to take and in the mirror, I would try to smile as wide as my mother who, in the early 90s, 
would sing pop music while steam hung over her afro in the kitchen and who would crane her neck backwards to laugh like the jokes were spilling from God's own pockets and I am telling you all of this to let you know that I, too, want to feel the heat with somebody or, at worst, I want to be a child of the heat's eager production, the smoke that rises and dances thick in the air, a ghost over those who labor in our names and then become the ghosts themselves and it's a shame our wings don't arrive until after we've already raced off the cliff and met whatever waits below and it's a shame to still have living hands and barely anything left worthy of touch. The joke hiding in Thriller is that if you play anything for long enough, it's like the dead never left. Revived, swaying in leather down another boulevard, I tell my boys that Michael was most black when he died without being able to save his land and no one gets that joke either. It seems the nightmares about drowning have again mounted my dreaming hours and have left me gasping into the stillness before morning and yet I still have not learned to swim. In the bath, I sit with the water just below my chin, a height that would not cushion my hunger for sleep. The world is undoing itself and I must tend to my vast and growing field of fears. In this new country, a nightmare is nothing but a brief rental home for the mind to ransack and leave the sleeping body unharmed. Around the porch after the cookout, the big homie says in the 80s police were locking niggas up for putting anything to their lips and lighting a match so wasn't really shit to be smiling about and then he closes the photo album on the picture of him as a boy in a single white glove. Science says that two dead stars collided once and that's how Earth got all of its gold and it is not vanity to cover yourself in what your people created underneath a summer's worth of southern branches and it is not vanity to grow weary of telling the world you cannot be fucked with and it is not vanity to cloak your casket in excess and it is not vanity to have the people who love you bear the weight of your excess for one last time and I imagine it is a question of comfort. Heaven is the only chart worth topping. And it turns out that I want all pictures of me loving my people to be in color. I want the sunlight whistling its way across our faces to be always amber and never an absent hue that might mistake our lineage for something safe. I am talking of artifacts again and not of how I cut my hands to the chins of those I love and kiss them on their faces and this type of love will surely be the death of us all. This type of love will shake the angels loose and send them running to their horns. Black Life on Film Doughboy I ain't been up this early in a long time. I turned on the TV this morning, they had this shit on about. About living in a violent world. Showed all these foreign places. I started thinking, man, either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. In the spring of 1991, I was seven years old, and my family moved from one neighborhood on the east side of Columbus, Ohio, to another, slightly less dangerous neighborhood, one that, at the time, would still be considered the hood by those on its outskirts. Compared to where we lived before the move, there were more poor and working families, but still gunshots at night, still police sirens during the day's long and slow hours, still worried parents at their windows, praying for their children. I was too young to understand violence as a thing that lived outside our doors, that would claim the lives and years of friends in a future that was near but still too distant to be visible. Instead, I reveled in having a backyard for the first time. I ran through the sidewalks with my older siblings, on the hunt for new friends. On the television news, there was a grainy video of Rodney King, his body thrashing from the force of a police officer's kicks, a baton cracking down on his ribs. I learned a new type of fear this way, through the confusion and anger of my parents and siblings, watching a man none of us knew being beaten viciously, broadcast for the world to see. It was something that some would say I shouldn't have been watching, a plain type of evil, 
the type that cannot be disputed or softened. Still, I watched, in a room with my stunned family, in search of an explanation. Around that time, televised trailers were airing for a film called Boys and the Hood. All I ever saw of it was a black screen with a slowly emerging white statistic, one out of every 21 black American males will be murdered in their lifetime. Then came gunshots. I remember my mother turning off the television. Years later, in the bygone era of older brothers with VHS stashes and the forever era of little brothers rating anything that their older siblings want to keep from them, I blew into the mouth of an old VCR and pushed the boys and the hood tape inside. By now I was 12, maybe 13. I had already watched Los Angeles burn, already seen boys playing basketball at the court one day, vanish the next. Once you understand violence, once its presence is constant enough, it can become something you survive until survival becomes normalcy, and fear becomes something you lie about when your friends are listening. Watching the previously forbidden film as a preteen in a basement during summer with friends didn't allow for much critical analysis beyond the adrenaline that comes with getting away with something. But looking back on Boys and the Hood now, having watched it at least a half dozen times in the 25 years since its release, I think that it's less a movie about death, or about visualizing the ghetto as a living, breathing entity, as it is a movie about loyalty that spans generations. Much like the very hood I knew myself, it shows mothers and fathers doing their best to protect their children, their boys and girls rapidly becoming men and women. It shows loyalty among crews, and the lengths any of us would go to in order to keep ourselves close to our chosen family, despite their most glaring flaws. Boys and the Hood never demanded the watcher to choose a narrative of the good black life against the bad black life, despite Cuba Gooding Jr.'s book and Street Smart College Dreaming Trey and Morris Chestnut's football megastar Ricky having vastly different chosen paths and dreams than Ice Cube's gang-affiliated Doughboy. Wanting to get out of the hood can be just as honorable as wanting to stay behind, or wanting to keep your hood with you when anyone tries to strip you of your roots, when a city tries to strip the land of its homes. With that in mind, I found Doughboy, though not painted as the most honorable figure, to be somewhat sympathetic. He was someone I knew, resigned to the machinery of what he understood at all costs. Upon watching Boys and the Hood for the first time and seeing Ricky murdered, I remember not being surprised. Even as a boy, I had lived long enough to understand that the person we think shouldn't die is the one who, of course, sometimes dies. The sports star, the kind and warm convenience store clerk, the loving single parent down the street. It was an end that I could almost see coming, even before I blew the dust from the VCR. I saw this end in the way my neighborhood basketball star, four houses down the street, was held close and watched over by his mother. I saw this end in the way the gang members who burned out on sports protected the high school football stars, knowing that envy sometimes comes with a gun at its waist. Ricky's death was easy to process and understand, even with the jarring scene of Doughboy carrying his bloody body into the house of his weeping mother, a scene that still rattles me to the core. I always wanted more for Doughboy himself. Revenge, yes, of course the revenge for his brother's death had to be a part of his destiny. Unquestioned, as if called down from the heavens. And, truly, fortunate is the death dealer who does not get a taste of their own medicine. But when the movie's epilogue rolled out, detailing the fates of the characters, it pained me to see the words at the bottom of the screen telling us that Doughboy, too, had been murdered. I wanted Doughboy to live in the hood for 50 more years. I wanted him to protect himself, protect the hood. Perhaps help keep it alive, despite all the dying around it, 
Growing up as a hip-hop fan in a landlocked state that had delusions of East Coast grandeur, liking Ice Cube was acceptable, unlike enjoying most of his West Coast peers. In the early 1990s, the music coming out of the West Coast was great for a cookout or a house party, but it was largely inaccessible listening to people in Ohio. If you were truly committed, you might have put some gold Daytons on a drop-top Chevy and pulled it out on a summer morning, before the rain inevitably came in the afternoon. But the things happening in mainstream West Coast rap didn't resonate with a bunch of kids who had never seen the ocean or felt sand between their toes. Ice Cube, NWA's most skilled MC, embraced a more East Coast-influenced sound in the early 90s, first working with Public Enemy's Bomb Squad, then using their heavy, frantic, urgent sound as a blueprint for four albums between 1990 and 1993. Those albums played loud in the parks and spilled heavy out of cars, and I grew up endeared to Ice Cube the MC. I still count him as one of the five best rappers of all time. Versatile, political, sometimes nuanced, and a stunning writer, Cube was south-central to his core, but he felt like one of the New York rappers I admired so deeply. Even in the late 90s, when he dove back into a West Coast sonic aesthetic, he stretched the imagination of regional rap. For an entire decade, Ice Cube matured me as a rap listener. Without his 90s run, I wouldn't have the ear that I do, or the willingness to take listening risks. He built a map, and I followed. The criticism of Cube's performance in Boys and the Hood, at least on my streets, was that it wasn't real acting, it was just Cube playing the dude he plays behind a microphone, the same sneering and careless troublemaker from NWA, or the antagonizing street smart hood from America's Most Wanted. Cube was, in some ways, playing the role of America's worst nightmare, a role he was deeply familiar with living. But, of course, he was so much more. If you play the movie Friday in a room full of black people, one of us will quote a line as the character says it on screen. Then another of us will do the same, and perhaps another. Maybe, by the time you're an hour in, you'll forget that there are characters on the screen at all. Every character is there with you in the room, on the couch, on the floor, laughing and slapping the wall. I find it important to always remind people that Ice Cube wrote Friday, making it a script by someone who truly knew and understood his people, the full scope of our neighborhoods and the characters within. Yes, I have known Adibo. Yes, I have known a Felicia. Yes, I have wasted a slow and hot day on someone's porch because there was nothing else to do. Friday, at its core, is a buddy comedy with a simple premise. But to me, it's much more. It's a masterpiece, one of the great black films of a generation. Ice Cube grew up and got old and made the kinds of movies that some of us roll our eyes at, with some gems in between. It's funny, isn't it? The meme of young NWA era Ice Cube situated next to Ice Cube in a family comedy like 2005's Are We There Yet? makes for a striking image, but it doesn't quite represent what I find to be a fascinating trajectory. Ice Cube can no longer be who he was in the 90s, but give him his due for what he has done, more than once, Ice Cube has, for years, spoken to various levels of black sanctuary with anger, humor, and emotion. I see my hood in every barbershop film, the joy of the space, and the fear that it may no longer exist. Ice Cube's most intense political music still echoes down an entire generation, years after it was made. Like many of the black men who helped raise me, Ice Cube is complicated, sometimes problematic, and still often endearing. I fight internally with this, 
the same way I fight internally with the black spaces we all glorify, the misogyny of the barbershop, the respectability politics of the cookout. I come back to Ice Cube because he embodies this, too. The full scope of every black man I know and have grown with, including myself, is incomplete without our emotional and social failures. I cringe at the occasional Ice Cube interview, I cringe at the occasional remark from my barber, and I value both of these men for what they have given to a world that I am lucky enough to share with them, despite our failings. And I suppose that this, too, is loyalty. That's the lesson I first learned from Boys and the Hood, and the one I carry with me even now. I learned at the feet of Ice Cube once, and I love him forever now. The Hood is not glamorous or romantic, but it is mine. It is ours, those of us who still sleep with its whispers hanging over us. And I am loyal to this. I return to where I am from and give a hug to my man who has done dirt and will do more, because we were kids once, riding our bikes through these same streets, and I love him for that. I have sat in a chair and looked through glass at a person in an orange suit and seen them as I remember them best, shooting jump shots with me on a bent rim in a dirt field, and I do this because I love them. I buy a DVD from the DVD hustler outside the corner store because his daughter held my hand the day of my mother's funeral and I love her, and so I love him, and so I love what feeds him, and so I love his hustle. It is summer and there is a video again. A black person is dead on camera again. And I think now, after so many of these incidents, about the urgency that comes with discussing the whole and complete life. I think about the necessity of going beyond the snapshot of death and the wedging in of binary narratives. A person is a whole person when they are good sometimes but not always, and loved by someone regardless. I love the people where I'm from because they would fight to humanize me if I died violently on film. We would do this for each other, despite anything in our pasts, because no one else would do it for us. We know that we are more than only good and only bad, despite what happens to the names of the dead after they are no longer around to speak them. There's a scene in Boys and the Hood, toward the end, the morning after Doughboy gets revenge on his brother's killers. He sits down with Trey in the morning sun, a 40 ounces in his hand. In a rare moment of emotional humanity, he tells Trey that he feels alone, in the wake of his brother's death and his mother blaming him for it. I ain't got no brother, he says. No mother either. As Doughboy begins to walk away, Trey yells after him, you've got one more brother left. Doughboy turns back, nods, walks away, and vanishes into the sun. Alone, but briefly loved. Tell them all to come and get me. We speak of heaven as if we've been there. As if heaven was a mile away. Marshawn McCarroll There are few things I love more than watching black people joyfully greet each other. There is much to be made of the act, in almost any setting, even though the tone of it may vary. The familiarity of a too forceful slap on the back during a hug, or the more gentle how your mama doin'? Pitched across a parking lot while someone throws down their bags and makes their way over for a hug. The more subtle nuances of a joyful greeting, sometimes rooted in relief or exhaustion, I walk through a sea of white faces in Salt Lake City, or Portland, or anywhere in America where I am made especially aware of the space I am occupying and how I am occupying it. From the sea emerges another lone black face, perhaps two. We lock eyes, raise an eyebrow, smile, and give a nod. One that says, I see you, and you see me. Even if no one else does, we know we're still here. It is an art, really. 
one that, like all institutions of black joy, gets dissected, parroted, and parodied, but only the language that comes from the body, and rarely the language that is spoken. On the other end of the jovial how you been doing? That bursts from the mouth of someone who you haven't seen in a while is often a response of all right, or fine, or, a favorite among people I know, I'm working on it. I sometimes consider this, how marginalized people quantify their own lives when compared to others who occupy the same world as we do. I say that I'm all right even when I've had good days. My father, a caring and deeply thoughtful person, has been all right for all of the years I've known him. The black woman who works in the market next to my apartment sighs, pats my hand, and tells me she's all right as she hands me back a receipt for another purchase. If there is a cost to this, the reality of fear, the fights that grow and seem insurmountable, the obsession with your grief in America as a beautiful and moving thing, it is a lowering of the emotional bar. Waiting for the other shoe to drop instead becomes dodging the avalanche of shoes, occasionally looking back to see the avalanche claiming another person you know, love, or have been on this journey of survival with for so long, you could be family. I celebrate expressions of unbridled black joy because I know what it takes to unlock this, to have the joy of the body drown out the anxiety of the mind, if only for a little bit. I know that blackness, when turned away from the mirror of itself and back into America at large, is most appealing when there is a type of suffering attached to it, sadness, anger, struggle, dressed up and packaged to the masses. A quarterback dances to celebrate an accomplishment in a violent game, and words like class appear, hanging in the air for months. The daughter of a black man murdered on camera by police records an ad for a presidential candidate and the white people who support the candidate are so moved by her retelling of a life without her father. And I do imagine that it must be something, to be able to decide at what volume, tone, and tenor you will allow black people to enter your life, for praise or for scolding. I think about this when I go to the gym and hand my gym card over to the same front desk person, always a white man. I ask how he's doing. Most days, he says good. Really good. The link between black music and black survival shows up most urgently when the stakes are at their highest. When I say that music is how black people have gotten free, I mean Harriet Tubman echoed songs along the Underground Railroad as a language. I mean the map to black freedom in America was built from music before it was built from anything else. Black music is the shepherd still pointing us toward any needed liberation, giving us a place to set our emotions, a room of our own. More than any other song on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, All Right signaled the arrival of a new song to nestle itself into this new historical movement, led by young black people from all backgrounds, black women, black college students, black queer and trans communities. The black song that sits in the movement has often been a reflection of black people in America, hope rooted in a reliance on faith, but still so often looking over its shoulder, checking for an exit. There are trains or chariots coming to take us away to a better place, a place just for us, people get ready, the gospel train, swing low, sweet chariot. There is the imagery of water, that which carried black people to this place, and that which will save them from it, a change is gonna come, wait in the water. I've always viewed All Right as part of the evolution of these songs. It's a song that clings to the idea of a hope that rests primarily on spirituality, but also a song that meets the people where they are and doesn't try to take them away. The dynamics of freedom have changed, the idea of freedom and escape becoming less physical. When Kendrick Lamar, before the first chorus hits, tells us I'm fucked up, homie, 
you fucked up, it feels like permission to revel in whatever we must in order to feel alive. The song is a gradual unpacking of the author's failings, his rage and vices, all held close in the idea of surviving. Where so many songs from the past promised a new and improved paradise on the horizon, all right promises nothing except the fact that there is pain, and there will be more to come. We can push our backs against that door and hold out the darkness until morning, but the night has been so long it feels like it might never end. Alright tells us to, instead, revel in the living, despite it all. When a smiling, joyful black person says they're doing all right, I imagine it's because they know good may be too close to the sun. I imagine it's because they've seen things burn. The heaven that Kendrick tells us is touchable might not be real, or I maybe saw heaven this fall, when Yale students marched across their campus in a demonstration against racial insensitivity. It was a seasonably chilly November day, and the well-attended and vocal march was visibly draining some of its participants. To fight for a country to see you as human is an exhausting thing, that exhaustion compounded by the physical exertion of marching, chanting, making your space your own. After the march wound down, someone found a loudspeaker, pressed play on all right, and this imagined cloud of despair pulled itself back. People danced, hugged, rapped along with what parts they knew. I realized then that the magic of all right is the same magic that exists in the body language of the joyful black greeting. It fits so well into these movements because it pulls so many people on the front lines of them to a place of healing. It works as both a rallying cry and a salve. It meets you at eye level and gives you what you need, an escape from the fight, or a push to get back into the fight. It is the warm nod and knowing smile from a black face emerging in a sea of white. There is something to be said about an artist who can face their people while rolling out the welcome mat for whoever might choose to sneak in the back door while not being ultimately concerned with their sneaking. Kendrick Lamar says God got us and the US crawls out of the speaker and wraps its arms around the black people in the room. The way a good preacher might say we in a black church and the congregation hums. The way I say my people and my people know who they are even if we've never met, or even if we've never spoken, or even if all we have is the shared lineage of coming from a people who came from a people who came from a people who didn't intend to come here but built the here once they arrived. There is something most comforting in this part of the song, Kendrick's promise that God has us. All of us, sure, but Kendrick is talking about the US who most need to remember that there is a God out there to be named, even if it isn't the one we pray to, or even if we are not of a praying people. There is a God to be pointed at, and pulled close. There is a hope in black gospel that I find alluring, even though I wasn't raised in a church, which echoes here. An urgency, even. Always a cliff to run toward, with the certainty that something will catch you. In February of 2016, an activist and poet from my hometown, Marshawn McCarroll, took his own life on the steps of the Ohio State House. I found this out when my wife called up to me in the office of our apartment, miles away from Columbus, where I knew Marshawn where we spent countless hours joking around at poetry open mics or bullshitting at local action events. I am used to the feeling of knowing the dead, having a touchable relationship with someone who is no longer present. Yet the immediate moments after the news arrives never get any easier to manage. Marshawn ran toward the cliff and there was nothing there to catch him this time. I went to Marshawn's Facebook page and saw his final message of my demons won today. I'm sorry. Right below was a picture of him and his mother, smiling at the NAACP awards. Right below that, 
a screenshot of a threat that was emailed to him from someone telling him that they wouldn't rest until he shut his nigger mouth. The truth is, once you understand that there are people who do not want you to exist, that is a difficult card to remove from the table. There is no liberation, no undoing that knowledge. It is the unyielding door, the one that you simply cannot push back against any longer. For many, there are reminders of this every day, every hour. It makes all right, the emotional bar and the song itself, the best there is. It makes existence itself a celebration. I hadn't spoken to Mar Sean in months, a thing that we feel most guilty about after a person is gone, especially if we are miles away from home, or on a plane to somewhere even farther from home, on the day of a funeral. The last time I saw Mar Sean was at a protest. We hadn't physically seen each other in a while, and we embraced. I slapped his back, perhaps a little too hard, and asked how he was. He told me I'm alright, you know. I'm still here. Maybe all of these heavens are the same, Kendrick Lamar's heaven, the heaven that all of the trains and chariots took our ancestors to, the heaven on the other side of Harriet Tubman's river. Maybe all they ask is that we help hold back the darkness for as long as we can, and when we can't anymore, they'll save us a room. They'll make sure all right is playing, and we'll feel the way it felt hearing it for the first time, in the face of all this wreckage. Full of so much promise, as if all of our pain were a bad dream we just woke up from. Burning that which will not save you, wipe me down in the ballad of Baton Rouge. I shoulders. When people talk about Hurricane Katrina, particularly in the national conversation, they focus almost exclusively on New Orleans. That city, of course, bore the wrath of the storm center, uncovering a failing of local and national government and infrastructure before, during, and well after the hurricane, with effects from it still lingering to this day. But with the lens pulled back, the full story of Hurricane Katrina is not only about water and the dead. It's also a story of the living, of place and displacement. Think of Baton Rouge, which Katrina's weather impacted in less direct ways. In the days leading up to and especially after the hurricane, when New Orleans became uninhabitable, the population of Baton Rouge swelled, almost overnight. Tens of thousands of New Orleans residents made the short journey up Interstate 10 to seek shelter in Louisiana's capital city, causing it to burst at the edges. The school system took in nearly 6,000 new students, causing immediate overcrowding. Traffic swelled making navigation of the city nearly impossible. No matter how good a city's infrastructure is, there is no preparing for an unexpected population increase that rapid. There was also a swelling of violence. In the years after Katrina, while many of the evacuees settled into their new city and gave up on returning to their old one, the murder rate across Baton Rouge briefly soared, well beyond that of other cities its size. In 2004, Homicides per capita in East Baton Rouge Parish were at 14.5 per 100,000 people. By 2007, that number had jumped to 21 per 100,000. Residents and law enforcement insisted that this wasn't simply due to the influx of new bodies in the city, but rather to the lingering state of crisis and uncertainty, where crime can thrive. So the story underneath the story is about the weight one city can carry on its own. The edges of New Orleans broke open, and there was a flood, and those fortunate enough to escape the flood became a flood themselves, and pushed the edges of another city to its breaking point. Homelessness in Baton Rouge rose, briefly and dramatically, in the years following the hurricane. 
people were making homes wherever there was land not touched by the ruin of the hurricane and its memory. In 2007, less than two years after the face of Baton Rouge shifted, the remix to Fox's Wipe Me Down, featuring fellow Baton Rouge MCs Lil Boosie and Webby, was released as a single. The original version, released a few months earlier, was a Baton Rouge street classic, but got little traction elsewhere. Comparing the original version's music video with the video for the remix, released months after the single began creeping up the charts, is an almost comedic endeavor. The original video is blurry and shot at odd angles, while various tags and ads tremble across the screen. In the remix, there is gloss, jewelry, all of the trappings of the mid-to-late 2000s rap video aesthetic. It is like watching the difference between a city that's trying, and a city confident in a light at the end of the tunnel. Baton Rouge hip-hop has a small history, but it also has the misfortune of being positioned less than 100 miles from the storied music culture of New Orleans. This is particularly hard for rappers from the area, given the massive influence that New Orleans had on Southern rap beginning in the mid-90s, when Master P relocated No Limit Records from the Bay Area back to his hometown of New Orleans and began working with local rappers, garnering immense commercial success. In 1998, Cash Money Records, which had been toiling away in New Orleans with little success since 1991, got a big break, signing a $30 million deal with Universal Records, in part due to the proven commodity of New Orleans rap. Wipe Me Down was a song made by three born and raised Baton Rouge rappers who were all under 25 years of age at the time of its release, which means they were, in some ways, children of the rise of Louisiana rap music. Young enough to have watched the rapid ascent in the 90s, and old enough, by the mid-2000s, to want a small piece of that for their own city. The song is absurd enough to anchor an inspiring sing-along, perfect for both club and car, and with enough nostalgic staying power to still be a point of discussion ten years after its release. Though not overwhelmingly skilled, the rappers, Boosie, Fox, and Webby, find a home on the beat, produced by Baton Rouge legend Mouse on the track, and work it for all it's worth. It matters that this was a Baton Rouge song, made by a Baton Rouge producer and three Baton Rouge rappers who were icons within their city, in a time when Baton Rouge was in the business of recovering its own identity, waiting for someone to carry it to the light. 2. Chest To tell someone say it with your chest is about a negotiation of confidence. If I do not believe in what you're telling me, I won't believe in you. It is not exactly a measure of volume, rather, a question of defined intent, articulated in a way that people can get behind. The first line in Wipe Me Down is one of the greatest opening lines in all of rap music. Fox says, I pull up at the club VIP, gas tank on E, but all drinks on me, and he says it with his chest. It is the entire thesis of the song, distilled to a fine point, I don't have much, but what I have is yours. For this, I think of what it is to grow up poor in one of your city's worst neighborhoods and dream of money. To grow up with an eye toward gold while young black men who look like you and come from a neighborhood like the one you come from in a city just a highway away are covered in gold from rapping. To get close enough to afford some things, but still sacrifice others. The thing I think people get wrong about the act of the stunt is that it isn't entirely narcissistic. Or, at least, it isn't always an act of self-worship. There is generosity in one who goes out of their way to look fly and raise the bar of the room they're in. There is generosity in having some cash in your pocket and an empty gas tank, and a room full of friends who are harboring a thirst, 
with maybe less cash in their pockets than you have in yours. To grow up poor, especially with any proximity to wealth, real or imagined, is to think sometimes that money can save you. To think that money can pull you and the people you love out of the feeling of any grief, or sadness. To then get money, especially rapidly, is to find out that isn't true. It's all a myth, especially if you are of any marginalized group in America. The only answer is to dispose of that which will not save you. What Fox was really saying, I think, is that it doesn't matter how one gets home in a room full of people they love. You make your home wherever you and your people stop. As someone who grew up with no money, I know what it is to want to show someone, anyone who will look, what little you have earned. Whether it's drinks, or jewelry, or some combination of both. Whether it's donating to a school or throwing a fistful of dollar bills to the sky. I believe all of these to be noble acts. This might seem like hyperbole, but I mean this. I say it with my chest, as I might on a night when I know my money is good in a city I love. The act of stunting, when it gets you free, is also charity. At the end of his verse, Webby, the youngest of the three rappers, boasts, this chain hit me for a couple grand, oh, no, I ain't complaining, just watch how you wipe my chest. It strikes me now, that the best way to show off is to hide that which you are showing off in something else, a joke, a memory, a warning. I once knew someone who wore a thick gold rope and kept it tucked into their shirt, so that the weight of it rested against their bare chest, but the unmistakable thickness of it could be seen around their neck nonetheless, like an opulent snake. It occurred to me that this, perhaps, was truly the way to show off, keep most of what you have at a whisper, but keep just enough of it so loud that it won't be forgotten. 3. Pants. Many years ago, I found myself in New Orleans in the early fall, not long after Katrina blew through the city, and the water, in some places, was still high. It was settled, done with its wildest moments, but still dark and mostly unmoving. I remember making the trip to New Orleans because it felt like the vague right thing to do. I was young, and didn't consider what I might do there, if I would be a burden to a suffering city with my aimless wandering. Many of my college friends planned trips to go south and help, which, I realized when I arrived, mostly looked like an exercise in witnessing, to see the damage up close, to stare, take it in, and to leave without actually doing much beyond sighing for several hours at a time, wondering what could be done. An older and wiser version of myself would have, I hope, chosen another action. But in September 2005, I stood on a curb in New Orleans while water pushed itself over my feet and onto the bottoms of my jeans, which were baggy and heavy, hanging thick over my sneakers, immersed in the dark brown water. Everything in the music video for the Wipe Me Down remix is large and colorful. Eras of rap fashion tend to move so fast and become so comical to look back on immediately after they're done that the video, released in the spring of 2007, already feels like it is from an era that can barely be remembered. From 2005 until about 2008, the entire aesthetic was about how much of your body could be folded into something too, or even three times, too large. I wore extremely tall tees despite not being tall by any stretch of the imagination. My pants, too, were almost clown-like in how much of me they consumed. In the Wipe Me Down video, there are airbrushed shirts swinging to the knees of the people wearing them. There are women dancing in outfits that aren't coordinated at all, and some are wearing what looks like heavily modified pantsuits. Boosie is wearing brightly colored polo shirts that are also too big, 
but at least he dressed up for the occasion. They are all wearing gold like they just discovered what gold was. Webby's pants are so low, the waist is visible even with his tall tee dangling far and long. The thing our parents would always say to discourage us from wearing our pants baggy and low was that we'd never be able to run away from anyone. I most love the wipe-me-down era of rap fashion because it didn't consider the need for escape as a barrier to being the flyest person in the room. Of course it is absurd to look back on now, but in the moment, it felt like the most extreme reaction to young black people being told, for years, to wear clothes that fit as a means of acceptance. Young rich black people in 4XL t-shirts and jerseys, belted pants still being held up by a hand, and no one feeling the need to run from anyone or anything. Somewhere along the way, when established rappers began to take fashion more seriously, clothing started fitting around bodies better. Pants didn't sag as much, shirts didn't hang as low. And immediately, the era of hiding yourself in what adorned your legs and torso seemed foolish. We became our parents almost overnight, laughing at pictures of ourselves from less than a year earlier. And why wouldn't we want to wear clothes that would allow us the freedom of escape? And why wouldn't we want pants high and well-fitting enough to not become victim to a small and merciless drowning? 4. Shoes In the bluest eye, Toni Morrison writes, in part, about the human investment in objects and material things as a way of tipping the scale of the righteous versus the wrong, of poverty versus wealth, of what gets you through the day versus what doesn't. In the second chapter of the book, the narrator focuses on the history and makeup of the home that the Breedloves live in. A focal point of this section is the description of the sofa. The breed loves purchased the sofa new, but the fabric split down the back before it arrived, making the sofa look tacky and worn down. The store didn't take responsibility, meaning the breed loves had to continue making payments on the damaged sofa. This is most striking because of the relationship we are to understand them desiring with the sofa, something large and new, signifying status and a financial freedom that the breed loves did not possess but desired nonetheless. I own more sneakers today than any one person should. Some would suggest that a person only needs three or four pairs of shoes to make it through a year, a couple good pairs of dress shoes, one good pair of sneakers, and perhaps a pair of casual shoes that fall somewhere in the middle of the dress shoe slash sneaker spectrum. I have considerably more than that. I used to say this with a lot more pride than I do now. I've become more conflicted about it as I age and think more about the ethics of how things are produced, or the ethics of growing up poor and now living in close proximity to people who are growing up poor, or the ethics of spending large amounts of money on that which doesn't secure a future for yourself and whatever imagined offspring might exist for you. I consider all of these things, and yet, I still have several sneakers. I still love the seeking out and purchasing of sneakers. I still feel the same satisfaction that I did as a young child, purchasing my first pair of Jordans with money I earned on my own. In my particular part of the Midwest, weather was unpredictable, even more so than it is in most places. In central Ohio, especially if you were a child in school all day, sneaker choice was important. You could wake up to sun, and walk outside to a muddy rainstorm. For this, I always purchased black sneakers for myself. If I could only afford one good pair of shoes per year, I'd want the pair that I could keep clean the easiest, even in the most unpredictable moments of weather. White shoes, for me, were the signifier. White shoes were my untorn sofa, new and sitting wide in a living room. To own a pair of white sneakers meant that you had enough money to have options. 
that you could, if you wanted to, keep a pair of sneakers in your closet for a special occasion and wear the other pair when it rained, or snowed, or wasn't perfect. My senior year of high school, I got my first pair of white sneakers, all white Nike Air Force Ones. I kept them in the box for weeks, taking them out only to try them on in the safety of my own home, away from the elements. When I wore them, I felt like a different person. I am also from an era where people were killed for sneakers. Yes, it does still happen now, of course. But in the 90s and early 2000s, there was such fear around big sneaker releases that there were tricks to the process, wear an old pair of sneakers on release day and keep the new ones in your book bag. Dress down, so no one will suspect that you're hiding expensive shoes anywhere. In our twisted and sneaker-obsessed youth, I think we found some small corner of that thrilling. To own something that another person would kill for. The first day I wore my all-white Air Force Ones outside, it did not rain. I checked the forecast tirelessly the night before to make sure of this. When I got to school and stepped out of my car, I accidentally brushed my foot against my tire, scuffing a long and permanent black mark along the side of the shoe. And that was it. The torn fabric down the back of my sofa. My one signifier, tainted. Now simply a dirty sneaker. It is fitting that the chant that runs through the wipe me down hook is anchored by shoes. The whole point of someone wiping another down, it seems, is in the performance, if I know I'm fresh, I don't need to tell anyone out loud, lend me a hand and make sure people know I'm on point. The thing I love most about sneakers, perhaps the thing that keeps carrying me back to them, is that there is no confidence I have found like that which comes with something on your feet that you can believe in. Lord, let me walk into every room as confident as the shoes on my feet make me feel. Wipe me down, on its face, is an exercise in boasting from three young rappers who just got money, but surely not as much money as they would have you believe. But that's the trick of it, they could have you believe anything. The song is about doing whatever it takes to fake your way into the rooms that people might otherwise kick you out of. And beyond that, it was just a hell of a lot of fun. The ride was short-lived. Fox still trudges away on the underground scene, he's released more than a dozen mixtapes since 2009, though none to any notable commercial success. Webby found some mainstream success with his Savage Life album series, the second one, 2008 Savage Life 2, offering up another Boosie-assisted hit in Independent. Boosie, arguably the most naturally gifted of the three, lost what could have been his most promising years to prison behind 2008 drug charges. He spent five years in the Louisiana State Penitentiary, from 2009 to 2014. He released one album, Incarcerated, from behind bars in 2010. During this time, also in 2010, he was indicted on federal first-degree murder charges for the murder of Terry Boyd. If convicted, he would have been staring down a maximum sentence of the death penalty, but a life sentence seemed likely, in part because of the fact that prosecutors leaned heavily on the sometimes violent content of Boosie's lyrics and the fact that he, at the time of indictment, was involved in several other cases. In 2012, he was acquitted of the murder charge due to a lack of evidence. Upon his release, he dropped the album Touchdown to Cause Hell in 2015, after changing his name to Boosie Badass. The album was both critically and commercially successful. Boosie now raps with a clarity that comes with both adulthood and, I imagine, incarceration. Still draped in gold, he is now more introspective, considering things like heaven, 
family, faith, and the future. Baton Rouge has also, in many ways, recovered. Homicide rates have dropped in recent years, as have the rates of homelessness. When visiting it last year, I talked to longtime residents who praised the city's ability to balance itself out after a hard decade. People were in love with their homes again. People finally stopped looking backward. For all three of the rappers at the center of Wipe Me Down, but especially for Boosie, the song feels like a brief and bright moment, with comical fashion, which burned out as quickly as it arrived. But there is something special in that, too, in three young black rappers, trying, in a moment of peril, to put their city on the map. To build themselves bigger than they were. From the sneakers up. Rumors and the currency of heartbreak. When I was fresh into my twenties, a pal of mine moved into a small, one-bedroom apartment with his girlfriend. Our group of friends thought she was wonderful, but still had our concerns, not all of them tied to the fact that he was splitting from our established post-college but pre-adult house and leaving his portion of the rent uncovered. The concept was entirely foreign to me, I hadn't yet loved anyone enough to want to share a space with them that wasn't temporary and then potentially quickly forgotten. The shared machinery of love and trust has many parts and therefore many flaws, and therefore many opportunities for disaster. At the time, it all existed on too thin of a ledge for me to imagine walking. When my pal and his girlfriend broke up three months into the lease, they stayed in the apartment together. Breaking the lease was too expensive, but so was one of them taking on the rent alone. There is also something about remaining inside of the wreckage that is more seductive than pushing your way out of it alone. It seemed, at the time, like stubbornness gone off the rails, but it is a judgment call. If I have the destruction of something that I once loved to carry with me at all times, isn't it like I still have a companion? The summer of the breakup, my friend would stay at our house late, making sure he could get home after his now ex-girlfriend fell asleep. They would avoid each other in the mornings, one sleeping on a tiny couch in the living room. Though it seemed like an absolute nightmare to me then, I remember both of them on the day we helped move them out of the apartment, as sad as I'd seen them in any of the months before. There are endings, and then there are endings. In this way, heartbreak is akin to a brief and jarring madness. Keeping up the fight, any fight, to not have to reckon with your own sorrow is an ideal, but it might help to keep a familiar voice in your ears a bit longer than letting go would. Heartbreak is one of the many emotions that sits inside the long arms of sadness, a mother with many children. I suppose it isn't all bad, either. For example, I am heartbroken at the state of the world, so I take to the streets again. But the real work of the emotion and all of its most irrational callings happens beneath the surface. When the room you once shared with someone goes quiet, there are few good ideas. I have gutted a record collection because too many of the songs reminded me of someone I didn't want to be reminded of. My friends have fled jobs, bands, states. I don't enjoy being heartbroken, but I'm saying I enjoy the point of heartbreak where we convince ourselves that literally everything is on the table, and run into whatever will dull the sharp echoing for a night, or a week, until a week becomes a year. It is the madness that both seduces and offers you your own window out once it's done with you. At some point, a person figured out that the performance of sadness was a currency, and art has bowed at its altar ever since. Sometimes it's a game we play, if I can convince you that I am falling apart, in need of love, perhaps I can draw you close enough to tell you what I really need. Other times, it is not entirely performance. In 1976, 
Fleetwood Mac was in desperate need of a massive album to cement their shift from blues rock obscurity to more radio-friendly pop. Mick Fleetwood had higher aspirations than kicking around small clubs, and could sense the band's time running out. Their previous album, 1975 self-titled Effort, was the first with California duo Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Containing songs like Rhiannon and Landslide, now seen as Nick's signature tune, the album saw success, paving the way for a monster follow-up. But in the two years that followed, everything began to come apart. Here, the part everyone knows, first bassist John McVie and keyboardist-slash-vocalist Christine McVie divorced at the end of a tour after six years of marriage. Then Buckingham and Nick's, embroiled in a volatile on-again-slash-off-again relationship since joining the band, finally permanently turned it off, which didn't reduce any of the volatility. Mick Fleetwood, the only one not in an intragroup romance, found out that his wife, Jenny, was having an affair with his best friend. The press, catching wind of what was believed to be the band's collapse, circulated inaccurate stories. In one story, Christine McVie was near death in the hospital. In another, Buckingham and Nicks were labeled as the parents of Fleetwood's child. The band was breaking apart, but not broken up, reveling in the false stories before falling into piles of cocaine to forget them. When the spring of 1976 came, they retreated to a recording studio in California. No longer at the edge of chaos, but fully immersed in it. The lyric that opens up rumors, the band's most iconic album, is Lindsay Buckingham's, I Know, There's Nothing to Say, Someone, Has Taken My Place opens the song's second-hand news, and just like that, the tone is set. There are few lyrics that set an album's tone like this one, and few songs. Nick's vocals weaving into clash with Buckingham's in the verses, littered with bitter proclamations. What sells rumors as more than just high drama, spun out on record, is the clean brilliance of its pop leanings. While their last album felt like what it was, an old blues band trying on some new clothes, rumors was the sound of the band fully committed to their new role as a pop band playing the game, aiming for the charts. The collaborative spirit of Buckingham and Nicks, even fractured, played into this more than anything else. Taking on the bulk of the album's writing and vocal duties, there was an ability to fashion a dual tone, Nicks, both remorseful and hopeful on dreams, Buckingham angry and spiteful all the way through the album, most impressively on Go Your Own Way. Even beyond this, the album's most interesting character, in some ways, is John McPhee. He was the band's most private and reserved member, and didn't provide lead vocals on any song. This meant that the narrative of his failing message could only play out on record through Christine, the most brilliant and stunning example being You Make Loving Fun, an ode to an affair she'd had. She told John, at the time, that the song was about a new dog. It's hard to ignore that the women made rumors exciting. Christine McVie wasn't as flashy as Nick's, but her familiarity and comfort within the band, paired with her and Buckingham's musical rapport, allowed space for her to emote with ease and nuance in a way that often made Buckingham sound like he was having a frantic, exceptionally skilled temper tantrum. These are the politics of splitting apart, we run to our friends and tell them the version of the story that will ignite in them a desire to support our latest bit of grief. It becomes a bit tastier, of course, if your friends are millions of pop fans. If, in the telling of your heartbreak, you have to share a microphone with the person who broke your heart. If, perhaps, the drugs wore off just in time for you to remember watching your ex-partner going home with someone else the night before. 
This is what made the album, particularly the collaborations between Buckingham and Nicks, so interesting, and slightly troubling, a real-time plea to see which of them could come out of the breakup more adored than they were inside of the relationship. Buckingham lost, of course, and didn't stand much of a chance. Nicks, gifted, charming, and singular, was the greatest and most fully developed character in the album Soap Opera, despite only taking lead vocals on two songs. But beyond winners and losers, the formula had already been figured out. For the voyeur who prefers public collapse, there is no better combination than someone who is both sad and willing to lie to themselves about it. Without a healthy investment in the art of denial, the album doesn't work. That, truly, is the album's greatest performer. Only denial of an emotional desire for escape could lead a band to complete an album when, at their worst moments, they were unable to talk to each other without screaming. In the Sausalito studio where the album was recorded, there were no windows. Mick Fleetwood, after a few weeks of recording, removed all of the clocks from the walls. When there is no image of time to make stand still, everything can become a type of stillness. The album represents the sound of 70s success at every turn, asking the band how much of the process and all of its demons they could take into themselves. It all spoke to the band's interest in self-torture for the sake of Mick Fleetwood's mission, his desire to make the great American pop album at all costs, even if Fleetwood Mac had to be held together by cocaine and scotch tape. The Chain, the album's most acclaimed song, is haunting, angry, teeming with regret and disgust. It is the whole of the album, condensed into just over four minutes. It was crafted largely in separate rooms, pieced together with past parts of old songs. It churns along painfully, driven by a McVie bass riff that sounds like a caged animal finally coming to terms with its surroundings. On the song, Buckingham and Nixon engage in a tug-of-war on the chorus, If you don't love me now, you will never love me again and it is like they are shouting at each other from across the studio. Buckingham, toward the end before he takes on his howling guitar solo, feels like he is almost shouting. It is the one song on the album that makes me feel like something could be broken at any moment. It is the song you play for someone when they ask you what the fuss about rumors is. It is the entire emotional cycle of dissolution, peaking at the end of the song with the band singing Chain, Keep Us Together in Unison, more as a plea than anything else. It helps to think about rumors as not just an album, but a living document. Once you push past the theatrics of it, the massive album sales and the thrilling gossip, it is a deeply sad project. One that reflects the human conflict of leaving and not leaving and trying to find some small mercy in the face of what has left you briefly torn apart. The songs are perfect, of course, drenched so richly in the late 70s California aesthetic that, for a moment, you may forget what the songs were born out of. For anyone who has ever loved someone and then stopped loving them, or for anyone who has stopped being loved by someone, it's a reminder that the immediate exit can be the hardest part. Admitting the end is one thing, but making the decision to walk into it is another, particularly when an option to remain tethered can mean cheaper rent, or a hit album, or at the very least, a small intense place that you can go to turn your sadness into something more than sadness. It's also immovable, our endless need for someone to desire us enough to keep us around. To simply call rumors a breakup album doesn't do it justice. Most breakup albums have an end point. Some triumph, a reward or promise about how some supposed emotional resilience might pay off. Rumors is an album of continual, slow breaking. 
My favorite photo of the band from the Rumors era was taken by Annie Leibovitz for the March 1977 Rolling Stone cover, the same month the album was released. The band is sprawled on a queen mattress that is resting on the floor. Mick Fleetwood, the glue, in the middle, his long limbs stretching from the top of the mattress to the bottom, a single sheet covering everyone. Buckingham has Christine McVie in his arms, a hand in her hair. Christine's hand is outstretched, reaching over to touch Fleetwood's foot. Nix is resting on Fleetwood's bare chest, her legs draped over John McVie's stomach. John McVie is unbothered, reading a magazine. The joke is that they were always too connected to let each other go so easily. I like to think of this as the great lesson hiding in rumors, there are people we need so much that we can't imagine turning away from them. People we've built entire homes inside of ourselves for, that cannot stand empty. People we still find a way to make magic with, even when the lights flicker, and the love runs entirely out. I see hell everywhere. Future